I invite you now to turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 23, uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 26. And uh, we're just spending this week and next week thinking about the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And um, today we come to, this afternoon we come to the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. So, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, the wood is green. When the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The story so far, which we looked at this morning, is that Jesus has been bundled from place to place by the authorities He went before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Then he was sent off to Pilate, 
the Roman governor, who thought he had an out from making a difficult decision, and he sent him to Herod, the Jewish ruler over Galilee, who was in Jerusalem for the Passover, because Pilate wanted his opinion of Jesus, who was also a Galilean. But then Herod simply dressed him up as a king, mocked him and made fun of him, and then sent him back to to Pilate. And no one was able to find any evidence against Jesus. Pilate said three times, I find no guilt in this man. But I think fearing a riot, he decided to deliver Jesus over to his soldiers to be killed. And so here Jesus is, walking along what has become known as the Via Della Rosa, the the way of grief, the way of suffering, walking on that road to the place of his death, a place that Luke calls the the place of the skull in Greek. The Aramaic word is Golgotha. The Latin word is Calvaria, from which we get the name Calvary. And on his way, Jesus interacts with various people. Uh, He's the central figure in the story, Jesus. And like the crowd, our eyes, as we read that story, are upon Jesus as he makes his way along that road of suffering. And there are three things that Jesus speaks of. The first is in 28 to uh, 31, where he speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. And he warns against judgment. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. And then in verse 34, as he's hanging there on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus prays for their forgiveness. And then in verse 43, Jesus says to that criminal who asked to be remembered. He says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing statement. We'll come to that in a moment. But I want to linger on those three things uh, this afternoon. First of all, Jesus warns against judgment. And these events are taking place on a Friday. Uh, just, uh, and we've come to call this day Good Friday. Uh, which is coming next week in our usual annual calendar. But for all the horror that is taking place, what Jesus is doing here is ultimately good. But in order to see how how good it truly is, you need to see it against the darkness of the human condition. And it's rather like a a jeweler, you know, if you go into a jewelry shop and you see a diamond that you're interested in, what does the jeweler do? The jeweler gets the dark cloth out and lays it on the counter and puts out the diamonds in front of you so that you can see the the shining diamonds more clearly, greater contrast. And this is what we see something here, something of a a similar nature. In order to see the, uh, the bright shining beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to see the terrible condition of the human, the human condition. And Jesus sparkles in the midst of it. And so in this darkness, we see this first 
interaction that happens in verse 27. I think it was normal for uh, convicted criminals to carry their own cross, or at least the cross beam, uh, to to the that instrument of their death and take it to the place where they're going to die. And there's a great multitude of people, verse 27, a huge number of people looking on. And Luke calls our attention to some women who are mourning and lamenting. There were, of course, in those days, people who, who made it their job to wail and lament at funerals. They were like professional mourners, if you like. But these are, these are not just professional mourners. These are people who seem genuinely moved by the sight of the Lord Jesus. That though the crowds had cried out for the release of Barabbas earlier, clearly there were some amongst the crowds who when they saw Jesus close up, they began to weep and to mourn and to lament. And these are women of of Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem, verse 28. Not of Galilee, not Jesus' friends. These are women of Jerusalem who have come to see something in Jesus. And Jesus himself takes it as genuine, genuine lamenting. You can remember how, as we looked this morning, Jesus was silent before his accusers, before before those who had hardened hearts against him. But he is not silent to those who have a genuine heart towards him. However, for all their weeping, there is something incomplete about their weeping. Because these women, for these women, they, they are unaware of the judgment that is to come. A judgment that is far more terrible than they were now seeing with their eyes. And the pain that they are experiencing as they see Jesus. And what Jesus refers to in these words, in the first instance, is the judgment that will come upon all Jerusalem... And Jesus has, if you look back in Luke's Gospel, he's already foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, which would take place some 40 years later in AD 70, where the Romans would come and eventually destroy the temple and sack the city. And verse 29 here reflects something of the sentiments of those words in, in chapter 21. And that catastrophe that's coming in 40 years' time will be so great that people will want the, hill, the hills and the mountains to fall on them rather than be at the hands of the Romans. But in verse 30, these women, or Jesus begins to quote from Hosea, the prophet. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. This is when God prophesied that judgment would come upon Israel. In other words, death would come quickly. But Jesus goes further than this. Further than simply judgment on Jerusalem. But he speaks about an ultimate judgment to come. Because he then he says in verse 31, 
For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, what does that mean? You know anything about wood and how it grows? Uh, if you've got a garden, you might be aware of this, of course. That wood has different stages of growth. When it's young, it's green and moist. And when it's old, it's dry and dead. And you try burning green wood. And it's difficult. It doesn't burn too easily. Lots of smoke. But with dry wood, it's dead easy. It takes off. Normally, you don't try and burn green wood. You let it dry out. And Jesus, in a sense, is speaking of the green wood of this judgment of Jerusalem. But it's a foretelling of a future judgment that is far more dangerous, far more desperate, which will go up in flames so much more quickly and easily. And these women, they're not ready for any of this. They're not ready for this judgment to come in either sense. And he is saying here, you may well be moved by the sight of Jesus and his suffering. You may well be moved to mourn and to lament. But are you aware that there is a judgment to come? Friends, it's possible for us this afternoon here in Solihull to be like these daughters of Jerusalem and enter into a time of mourning this coming week as we remember the death of Jesus. And I know lots of people will feel sad at the death of Jesus and his suffering. But the much more important question is this. If you feel sad about Jesus going to suffer an agonizing death that he did not deserve, and remember that nobody could ever find anything wrong with him, do you recognize also that you may be in danger of great judgment yourself if you are a sinner and you love your sin? You need to be ready, you see, to face a judgment that will come because one day everybody is going to give an account before God. That's the first thing, the judgment to come. But here's the second thing, a much more upbeat note, I think. Jesus is the one who forgives sins. And we see this here in verse 34. Here's Jesus. He's on the cross, hanging on the cross, And it's interesting, I think, as you look at the gospel writers, they don't labor the physical suffering of Jesus. Unlike the depictions you find in films. And for that reason, and for many other reasons, I recommend, that's why I recommend you don't bother watching films about the death of Jesus. Because they focus on the wrong thing. Luke doesn't focus on the physical sufferings of Jesus. The actual act of crucifying is mentioned in verse 33. He's also, at this point, he mentions a couple of criminals that are crucified with him, and more of that in a moment. But Luke is much more interested in the words that are said, whether from Jesus or from those around Jesus. And there's much that's going on in this scene 
There's something slightly chaotic about it. There's a crowd watching in verse 35, probably in silence. But amongst them there are the rulers, the, uh, the priests, the members of the council. They're scoffing, they're mocking, even as Jesus is on the cross. Surely the Christ, God's chosen one, would save himself, they're thinking. And they're saying to him, and they're mocking him at the bottom of the cross. And they're thinking, if you really are the Christ, surely you would come in glory and with legions and you would save people and you would save yourself. And the soldiers mock him. And they take his clothes. I mean, how pathetic. They take his clothes. They start casting lots and say, who's going to have his clothes? And there's a mocking inscription put over his head. This is the King of the Jews hanging here on this cross. And it's a jibe, I think, from Pilate to the Jewish people, which the other gospel writers tell us all at Jesus' expense. Let's have a laugh at Jesus. Jesus, the King of the Jews. Look at him now, hanging there on the cross. And yet in the midst of all of this, In verse 34, we get some words of Jesus, which in a sense, the whole of the Gospel of Luke has been leading up to. Uh, Just a bit of background. Luke is writing. Why is he writing this Gospel? He's writing to his friend Theophilus. Look at chapter 1, the first few verses. He's writing to his friend, giving an account of Jesus' life. And so perhaps Luke is saying with somebody like Jesus in mind, like with, like Theophilus in mind, he brings Theophilus, the reader, and us, the readers, to the point where on the cross Jesus is suffering and at that very moment of his weak, greatest weakness, he wonderfully says, forgive them all their sins. Forgive them all their sins. Who's he he referring to? Does he mean the soldiers who nailed him to the cross? Does he mean Pilate who condemned him? Does he mean Herod who made sport of him? Does he mean the chief priests who plotted against him? Who does he mean? Or what about the crowd in front of him? Does he mean the whole crowd? It's certainly true that part of the gospel message that the apostles were later to proclaim in Jerusalem was that their hearers, the crowds, and all these people I've mentioned were responsible for Jesus' death. But do we just stop there? What about you and me? Were you and I responsible for Jesus' death on the cross? I think the answer is yes to that question. All of us in our sin... There's a great hymn, a modern hymn, Stuart Townend's hymn, where one of, one of the verses says this, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, I too, you, me, 
We were responsible for the death of Jesus. My sin puts him there. But it's this death on the cross that makes possible forgiveness for your sins and for my sins. We may, we, we may well be like the people around Jesus who have no idea what they're doing. Who may not realize how our sins are related to Jesus' suffering. But Jesus knows exactly how they're related. Amazingly, he's suffering for them, but amazingly at that very moment he says, forgiveness. He speaks of forgiveness for sinners. I wonder if you know that forgiveness this afternoon. The forgiveness for all your sins. And do you know that forgiveness is a relational matter? You can't, it's not just a tick, a tick in a box. It's a relational matter. Do you know you can only truly receive forgiveness when you're looking into the eyes of the person offering you forgiveness, the one whom you have wronged. And you receive it, that forgiveness, thankfully and gladly. And you embrace one another and that relationship is restored. That's what forgiveness looks like. That's what receiving forgiveness, the forgiveness of Jesus, looks like. Do you know that forgiveness? That restoration of relationship with Jesus the mediator between God and man. Sometimes you'll see people on TV who have suffered at the hands of a criminal. And a TV reporter, I think, probably ignorantly will ask, do you forgive that criminal? Especially if they're a Christian who suffered loss. Do you forgive the criminal? But I need to say to you, I think that's such a, a cruel question in many ways. Because while forgiveness may be offered, it cannot truly happen until the criminal realizes the enormity of the crime and comes and seeks forgiveness and turns away from everything he has done to bring suffering in the first place. It's the same with Jesus. There's no such forgiveness at a distance. There has to be repentance. There has to be a desire to be in relationship to God through Christ. And it's then that you know that the prayer of Jesus has been answered in your life. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And friends, my, my greatest fear, and it's a regular fear that pastors I, have, I think have all the time, is that uh, anyone who reads these words thinks that because Jesus has said it, therefore they've got forgiveness in the bag, as it were. But even if... And, and even if you don't know Jesus, and even if you don't care about Jesus, and you still live the way you, you want to live by yourself, and you don't trust Him and you don't obey Him, but you still think that somehow forgiveness is in the bag for you. No, it isn't. It can't be in the bag until you've had that relational embrace with the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's looked into your eyes, and you have looked into His, and He has said, Father, forgive Him. Forgive her. And you have looked at him and said, thank you. I've received it. Thank you for your forgiveness. Have you come to receive that forgiveness from him? Well, Jesus offers forgiveness. <clears throat> but here we come to the, the next point. Here's Jesus who promises eternal life. 
And here we have something, a curious thing, on a cro- hanging there on a cross. You've got three men hanging on three separate crosses. And Jesus in, is in the middle of these two criminals. Jesus himself is innocent, but he's got two criminals either side of him. And these are men who are living the last moments of their lives. And there's no escape from the predicament that they're in. Because they've both been convicted of a crime and are being punished. And soon, both of them are going to be dead. All of them are going to be dead. These two men, though dying by the same means, are dying very different deaths. One of the criminals rails at Jesus. He's angry with Jesus. He cries out to Jesus. We get a flavor of it in verse 39. Are you not a Christ? Save yourself and us. Save us. Who do you think you are? And there's a kind of deep bitterness and there's an anger that comes out when there's this moment of extreme trouble in your life. And here it is in this most... In the midst of this excruciatingly painful journey, that's where the word excruciating comes from. It comes comes from the cross. It's the most painful death that the Romans had yet devised. And in that moment of stress, all the invective that is in the heart, the human heart, comes out and it gets poured out on Jesus, as it were. Now you might think that somebody who's in those moments... You know, when somebody's facing the, their death, they might, there might be a softening of the heart as they face their demise, but it's not necessarily so, is it? Some people believe that they can put off their, the claims of Christ and put off coming to Christ until some day later. One day, when I'm old enough and I've had my, had my fun in life, then I can come to Christ. And on my deathbed, I'll receive Christ. Well, that's possible. We'll come to that in a moment. But do you really think that's going to happen? Passages like this warn us that on your deathbed you may be shouting at God. You may be complaining to God. Your heart may be so hardened that all you want to do is heap insults on Him. So that's one criminal. But the other criminal, he hears and he interjects with a rebuke. Not a rebuke of Jesus this time, but a a rebuke of His colleague in crime because he has a a greater sense of that imminent meeting with God and so in verse 40 he says do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and not only that he has a recognition of his crimes in verse 41 and he has a recognition of the innocence and the purity of the Lord of Jesus And yet there is something even worse yet to come than the death that he's suffering. He has to face an encounter with God. Now friends, if if you want a picture of somebody who is ready to become a Christian, it's this. That he has a sense of the reality of God's judgment. A sense of his own sin. A realization also of the purity of Jesus. Jesus. And so he calls out to Jesus, verse 42. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Oh Lord, remember me. Don't forget me. 
And at this point, then Jesus says, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing thing to say at that moment. You see how different this man's death was to the other man? Even there, as he, even as he hangs there helpless on the cross beside Jesus in the midst of all the horror, there is the beauty of this moment uh, that in all his need he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus responds with a promise which actually amounts to eternal life. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, you're going to die in a few moments, in a few hours. But today you'll be with me in paradise. You're safe. You know, it's possible to die well. It's possible to die beautifully. It's possible to die with the assurance of Jesus' words in your ears and in your heart. Will you die like this? Will you die with the assurance of paradise to come? And note, this, this paradise comes at the point of death. With faith in Jesus, you are ushered into paradise immediately as you trust in him. And you will not yet be united to a resurrection body. That comes later. That comes when Jesus returns again and your, your soul is reunited to your body and you're raised again to life. But meanwhile, there's going to be paradise. Paradise to be enjoyed with Christ forever. Is that where you're going? Is that where you're, you're going? There is the most marvelous compassion of Jesus in this crucial moment. That even in the midst of his own suffering, he promises salvation to any and all who will come to him. I had to take a funeral this last week. And I spoke on these words in verse 43, truly today, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Here's a man who probably has done nothing good in his whole life that his whole life is marked by petty crime and thievery and has probably been a nuisance and a nightmare for all those around him. And yet, even a man like that, with no reputation, nothing to commend himself in himself to God, can come at that last moments of his life to Jesus and say, remember me. And Jesus, without fail, will give that promise today you will see me in paradise. And if it can happen to a man in such a low estate as this, in, in one sense the lowest of the low, a man who would be cast out of society, then it can happen to any one of us. That none of us has qualifications before God except that very simple question. Jesus, will you remember me in heaven? Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And anyone who comes to Jesus in that way, no matter who you are and where you're from, he will say today to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's a great promise of the gospel for the high in society and the low in society. Whatever you are, you have nothing to offer, but he has everything to offer you if you just come to him. 
It is the most marvelous compassion that Jesus shows here in the midst of his own suffering. He promises salvation to all who will come to him. And he is he alone is worthy of our trust, our worship, and our praise. That's what makes the cross so good when he died. He went to the crosses to suffer in our place, to endure judgment in our place. He offers forgiveness to all those who will receive it. He promises eternal life to all who will recognize their need. If you will only come to Jesus and plead that he remember you in his kingdom. So do you have Jesus this afternoon? Will you have him now and forevermore? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. But more than this, thank you for our wonderful Savior who in the midst of all his suffering is able to offer eternal life. We pray that all of us will know Jesus and know his compassion and love to put aside all our sense of qualifications that we may have, we may feel what we have, and say they're all worthless, except that we may come in simple faith and ask Jesus to remember us. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.